This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Hello, welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. We are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on frequency nine six two five kilohertz on the thirty one meter band if in Southern Africa, and on channelafrica.co.za if you want to stream us. My name is Spumelele Zundi. I'm with Onel Nzinti, with Sani Matebula, and Mosibudi Makura. The top stories. There seems to be slow uptake in registering candidates for the DRC's presidential elections. Ivory Coast president pardons prisoners as the country celebrates independence. In economics, Nigeria's Diamond Bank expects to conclude the sale of its British units before the end of the year. And in sports, South Africa's national women's football team begins preparations for the 2018 Kosafa Women's Championships. Onelenzinzi has your news. Thank you, Paul. Ivory Coast President Alison Otara has announced amnesties for around 800 prisoners, including former First Lady Simone Bagbo, who is currently behind bars. About 3,000 people were killed in the West African nation in 2011 after former President Laurent Bagbo refused to accept defeat to Ouattara in the polls held the previous November. According to the president of Ivorian People's Party Youth Wing, Konate Navigu, the pardons came as a surprise to Ivorians. Only one day remains before the country's independent National Electoral Commission to close its offices of receiving and looking into candidacies, with the commission having received only four candidates for president. Past experience has shown that candidates here in the Democratic Republic of Congo are used to handing their candidacies at the very last minute. The Independent National Electoral Commission has warned it won't add any more days after it will have closed its offices this Wednesday. Commission President Cornel Nanga. That was to remind our political actors that only one day remains before closing offices receiving candidates for presidential and national parliamentary elections and we are not ready to add a single day as on Wednesday 8 we close. The people of South Sudan have expressed mixed reaction on the new peace agreement that was signed earlier this week in Sudan by President Salva Kiir and his longtime political opponent, Riek Mashar. Most of the citizens say they doubt the agreement will hold. Large crowds cheered outside the venue in Sudan's capital, Khartoum, as the deal was signed. Since the war broke out in 2013, about 4 million people have been displaced. The people of South Sudan expressed some of their concerns. If they are outside, they are friends. But if you are in South Sudan, they become enemy. I want to tell them that citizens are tired of you, and this is the last hope for you guys. When there was peace last time, people are stable, and situation is very fine. There is no economic crisis. When the war comes, 
broke out in 2013, everything has fallen apart, even the life has become very difficult. Our leaders, they have to know that when they agree for the sake of the peace, to bring the end of the crisis of the country, that they know that there are differences, they have to forget about that. And then they have to know that the people of this nation are behind their union for peace. The European Union and the United States have condemned the violent attacks targeting the Zimbabwe opposition since elections last week. 27 supporters of the MDC party were released on bail on Tuesday. President Emerson Nangagwa declared winner of the country's first ballot since the downfall of Robert Mugabe again vowed to protect rights, but the government has been accused of overseeing a brutal post-vote crackdown. Last week's poll, which was marred by soldiers opening fire at a protest, killing six people, was meant to relaunch Zimbabwe on the international stage and attract foreign aid and investment after the repression of the Mugabe era. Lastly, two people have been pulled alive from collapsed buildings on the Indonesian island of Lombok as rescuers continue to search for survivors of Sunday's deadly earthquake. A woman was brought to safety after people heard her cries and elsewhere, a man was rescued from the rubble of a mosque. After shocks are still being felt, at least 105 people have died and over 230 injured following the 6.9 magnitude quake. The founder of the Indonesian charity Care for Children, Hiam Feta, has the, says the children are now homeless. Everything what we have built up here in the last 13 years are destroyed just in 10 seconds. I don't know what is going on, but for the last 10 days we have all the time earthquakes and aftershocks. The ground is moving under us all the time. It's like if you step off a boat, after a while you were on a boat and everything is moving. It's like if you are drunk and we are just devastating. All the kids sleeping now on the street because the houses are destroyed. They cannot sleep inside anymore. We put mattresses on the ground and yeah, we are homeless with almost 90 children right now. Channel African News, I'm Onilinsinzi. It's 17.06 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on China and Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumele Lezondi. Thank you very much, Onele, for that news update. Let's start in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where no massive participation has been recorded for candidates to the president position in the country. Only one day remains before the country's independent national electoral commission to close its offices of receiving and looking into candidacies. The commission has received only four candidates for president. Jean-Noël Bamwenze reports from Kinshasa. The office is receiving and looking into candidacies for both the presidential and national parliamentary elections are to close this Wednesday and no massive participation for the president position up to now. Only four candidates have handed their candidacies to the Independent National Electoral Commission's office here in Kinshasa. The recorded candidacies are from two famous politicians and two unknown people without no political background. One of those inexperienced candidates named Set Kikuni is the one who opened the flow by handing his candidacy to the Independent National Electoral Commission. Four days later, Kikuni's candidacy was followed by the one of Jean-Pierre Bemba last Friday. Jean-Pierre Bemba, who's a former rebel, was keeping the position of deputy president during the government of national unity that was led by a president and four deputy presidents. Bemba is the leader of the movement for liberation of Congo, well known as MLC. 
Another inexperienced candidate came in on Monday to hand his candidacy. His name is Alan Daniel Shekomba, coming from nowhere and nobody knows him on this country's political scene. Most of Congolese have just heard about his name for the very first time. Alan Daniel Shekomba has handed his file as an independent candidate. He told the journalist that his candidacy has come to respond to the Congolese needs to be ruled by a neutral president. My candidacy is a response to needs Congolese have expressed to have a president of the republic who is beyond all the political division. Indeed, we are part of the value of peace, democracy, unity and especially the national cohesion. After Alan Daniel Shekomba's candidacy on Monday, the fourth one was the one of a famous politician Vital Kamere, the lead of the Union for the Congolese Notion well known as UNC. Vital Kamere is one of the people who were very close to President Joseph Kabila and indeed He's one of the co-founders of Kabila's political party, the People's Party for Deconstruction and Democracy, referred to as PPRD, and he's the former speaker of this country's National Assembly. Speaking to media after handing his candidacy to the Electoral Commission, Vital Kamere said there are still some questions to be clarified before the December elections. We have to continue discussing about the voting machine to make sure this doesn't disturb the process. We are going to discuss also the question of voters registered without a fingerprint and last, we need to make sure that insecurity problem is solved in the east and in the center of the country. Meanwhile, two other candidacies were expected this Tuesday. Those are from Felix Chisekedi, the son of late opposition leader Etienne Chisekedi, who leads one of the wings of the Union for Democracy and Social Progress, UDPS, and the one of former Prime Minister Adolphe Muzito, who has been for long a senior executive of the unified Lumumbiste party of veteran politician Antoine Gizenga, but his candidacy is coming as an independent since Muzito is suspended without a delay. The Independent National Electoral Commission has warned it won't at any more day after it will have closed its offices this Wednesday. Corne Nanga is the commission's president. That was to remind our political actors that only one day remains before closing offices, receiving candidates for presidential and national parliamentary elections, and we are not ready to add a single day as on Wednesday 8 we close. The past experience has shown that candidates here in the Democratic Republic of Congo are used to handing their candidacies at the very last minute. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Ivory Coast President Alassane Ouattara has announced amnesties for around 800 prisoners, including former First Lady Simone Gbagbo, who is currently behind bars, in the name of national reconciliation. Simone Gbagbo was sentenced to 20 years in prison in 2015 after she was convicted on a charge of endangering state security for her role in the 2011 post-election violence. About 3,000 people were killed in the West African nation in 2011 after Laurent 
Gbagbo refused to accept election defeat to Ouattara in the polls held the previous November. Gbagbo was later captured and turned over to the International Criminal Court in The Hague, where he is on trial for crimes against humanity. Channel Africa's Kumbero Mnjarare spoke to Konade Navik from Gbagbo's Ivorian People's Party about the pardons and how they will help in the country's reconciliation process. Every year he, he promised to free them and uh, when he, he gives the statement there is nothing. So we are surprised that today, yesterday he did it. No, because um, he is under very, very huge pressure. AU is AU and, and, and Europe, European Union are putting pressure, very huge pressure on him. So he could not do other things that uh, free, free them. Uh, we are always, always uh, demonstrating, asking him to free them, to free them every year, every year, and refuse. And uh, um, a week, a week ago, we we all know, we politicians all know that he will, he will free them because we met uh, the ambassadors, uh, uh, you, you, uh, European Union ambassadors. We met. Uh, uh, French ambassadors, we met uh, um, the U.S. ambassador till that uh, yesterday they will free them. So we are not, uh, we as, as observers, we are not surprised, but uh, uh, the population is surprised. Now, apart from Simone Bagbo, what can you tell us about the other high-profile figures that the president has pardoned? Oh, yes. It is very good for us. And uh, we, the, there is uh, the prisoners are free and then uh, and uh, the exile, the, the, those who were in exile will come back too because he cancel every, every, everything for, for them. So we think that it is a very good statement. The first very first good statement of President Ouattara since he was in power. You cannot imagine that um, since 19, uh, 2011, since 2011, they were in the jail, they were in exile without meeting uh, a judge, without judgment, without uh, meeting even a lawyer. They are they always, always, always in the prison. It is very, 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 very good, good, very, very statement. But I don't know if politically we will take a benefit of that, of advantage of that. I don't know. Now, remind our listeners about the charges that these prisoners were facing. Yes, they, they, they are accused to, to try to overthrow the regime. The former uh, defense president, leader Kwasi, was accused to overthrow the regime. The, the, the others are accused for the same crime. But Simon, the first lady, was accused to uh, human crime, human crime, crime against humanity. And uh, um, she, don't forget that she, she has trouble international court again so this is the first step and we are fighting so that she won't go to international court now the president has made an announcement yesterday on the eve of the independence day have the prisoners been released yet or are they still held in detention uh, yes, they will be free uh, maybe tomorrow. They will be free tomorrow. Now, the question of national reconciliation in Ivory Coast has been seen by some as a black mark against President Ouattara. And years of trials involving political prisoners have left many in Ivory Coast uh, bitter and pessimistic just as the country starts to gear up for uh, elections in 2020. Are you getting a 
any sense that people's perceptions about uh, President Watara are changing, that people are beginning to be optimistic about the future? Yes, uh, it is like uh, people people cannot say that Watara is changing. Uh, the, the only thing is that I'm telling that is under pressure. So we think that um, it is um, international community who put Watara taking this kind of decision. And uh, now we are going to see in the, in the, the, the coming days if the reconciliation is, will be um, very, if it will, it will go to make uh, the reconciliation may be true. Sure. In Cote d'Ivoire, because uh, one thing is to free the the, the the prisoners, the other thing to is to work for reconciliation for 2002. Because uh, there is very huge tension in Cote d'Ivoire, very very huge tension in Cote d'Ivoire. Will it be at the level like South Africa Commission uh, Reconciliation Commission to put it to make it in in place to to work hard for the reconciliation? I don't know. The only thing is positive in the statement. He said that he won't be candidate in 2020. This is good, good, good for us. That's Konate uh, Navik, uh, who is president of the Ivorian People's Party. Youth Wing on the line from Abidjan in the Ivory Coast, talking to Kumbero Moncharere. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African time. 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. Now, Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, is celebrating its independence day today. The day commemorates Cote d'Ivoire's uh, freedom for, from France, gained in 1960, and is a national holiday. Today, the people and government of the Republic of Cote d'Ivoire celebrate their 58th anniversary of their independence from France and pay tribute to their first president, the late Félix Houpouet Boigny. Côte d'Ivoire had been a colony of France since 1893. It gained independence from French rule on the 7th of August in 1960. Félix Houpet Boigui was its first president and served in this capacity until his death in December 1993. It was rough sailing for Côte d'Ivoire during the first half of the 20th century when it was part of the Federation of French West Africa and did not enjoy rights of representation in France or in Africa. At the end of the Second World War, in recognition of the loyalty of African countries to France during the war, the French government granted French citizenship to all Africans in colonial territories with the right to organize political parties, but efforts to gain independence from France continued. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Glantla Matlangu in Johannesburg. 
Now, Malawi's president, Peter Mutarika, has paid back 2,500 US dollars, which was fraudulently deposited into his ruling Democratic Progressive account, where he is a sole signatory. This comes a few weeks after the United States, European Union, and Malawi's human rights defenders asked him to pay back the money or resign since such money was meant for the procurement of food supplies for police trainees. In tra- for police trainees. George Mohango reports. The scandal went viral attracting local and international condemnation because President Peter Mutarika was alleged to have pocketed about 205,000 equivalent to 145 million kwacha from Malai Police Service Food Ration Supplier Pioneer Investments. The money was deposited into his ruling Democratic Progressive Party account where he is the sole signatory. Even after revelations, Mutarika later withdrew some money triggering public debate. Despite President Mutarika denying any wrongdoing, saying it was a donation to the DPP for its July convention, the U.S., European Union and human rights defenders teamed up calling for Mutarika's resignation or have the money refunded to account number one. Activists through Charles Gajaloeka also issued an admatum for the president to pay back the money within days, which apparently has done according to the meeting the party had just on Saturday. The DPP and President Mtalika now being in a very clear awareness that what they benefited from are believed to be proceeds of fraud. It is money meant for construction of classrooms so that we can save our, our children. It is money meant for construction of roads. It is money meant for procurement of better teaching and learning resources in our schools. It is not money for campaign. It is not money for DPP. It is money for the people of Malawi. Recently, also the Anti-Corruption Bureau, SCB, confirmed it was probing the contract over police food, but declined to give further details. The graft board noted some dubious acts in the whole scenario. However, some youth think... The said names of the president and the DPP can only be cleared after the anti-craft busting board scrutinizes the bank statements and the other documents. One such youth is Mavuto Piri. We have been talking about corruption and even the DPP-led government has been preaching about uh, combating corruption. How come such huge sum, uh, uh, such huge amount of money was paid into the party's account? We as the youth, we are very angry as the youth in this country we will see what to do because there are so many ways of expressing our anger uh, other than just making such calls. We can mobilize ourselves, we can go on the streets until the party or government adheres to our cause. Now activists even say though President Mutarika and his DPP have paid back the money, it is tantamount to acceptance of fraud. They feel the president has to be prosecuted for abusing the public office. Kajoloweka again. Secondly, is that we have also demanded from Pioneer Investment to refund that money back to the people of Malawi because that money was fraudulently gotten through a dubious contract at, at police. In Malawi, this is not the first time for donors to condemn abuse of public funds. During the leadership of former President Joyce Banda, close to $200 million was siphoned from public coffers. Donors then suspended aid valued at $150 million, which was meant for the procurement of drugs 
and provision of basic needs in various schools. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. It is 17.23 Central African time on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Now let's go to the Democratic Republic of Congo where a team of Red Cross experts has been deployed in Beni close to the epicenter of the Ebola outbreak in the eastern province of North Kivu. This is part of efforts aimed at halting the spread of the country's 10th outbreak of the disease which has already claimed the lives of over 30 people. For more on this, we're now joined on the line by Nicholas Lambert, the International Committee of the Red Cross's Deputy Head of Delegation and its Ebola Response Team Leader. Hello and thank you very much for joining us, Nicholas. Yes, hello. Yeah, I'm Nicholas Lambert here at Beni. I'm uh, representing the international mm. um, here uh, since uh, Saturday. All right. Um, now, Nicholas, uh, tell us about the um, the focus that you, the areas that you guys will be focusing on in in Beni. Sorry, can you repeat the question? The line. Um, the key yeah. areas of focus with this Ebola outbreak in Beni. Yes, we are here in the for a few cases that have been confirmed by the Ministry of Health have declared there at on a Wednesday and Committee of the Red Cross have been fighting quite extensively uh, to uh, to spread uh, further. Mm. Um, Nicholas, how big is your team and what will your team be doing there exactly? All right, we we seem to be having a problem with our line to Beni um, in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. Um we well that's the story about um the red cross which has deployed a team to that eastern town of beni in the north kivu province in the democratic republic of congo where there's been another outbreak of ebola it is the 10th outbreak of ebola in the democratic republic of congo i'm an actress i'm a motivational speaker born with albinism um, the nurse first asked my mother, is your husband white? My mother said, no, why are you asking me that question? When I grew up, there was no publication of person with albinism disappearing, mm. being stolen. You see, it was happening, but there was no exposure as it happening now. Hi, I'm Pule Mulebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, Monday, 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time, and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time, Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report. An enlightened narrative with me, Pule Mulebazi, on Channel Africa from an African perspective.
This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre du Soleil. Kia Makande Mbalelwa Kina Miriam Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika Mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. You still listen to Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumele Lezondi with you until 1800 hours Central African time. If you want to write to us, it is info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also tweet us on Channel Africa 1. Onelentinti is here with your news headlines at 17.30. Ivory Coast President Alassane Ouattara announces amnesties for around 800 prisoners. Only one day remains before the country's Independence National Electoral Commission to close its offices of receiving and looking into candidacies in the DRC. And people in Kenya and Tanzania mark the 20th anniversary of the attacks on the U.S. embassies in both countries by Al-Qaeda. Channel African News, I'm Onelin Sinzi. Thank you very much, Onele. Now, procurement irregularities in South Africa have increased significantly in municipalities and state-owned enterprises. This is according to a new report by non-governmental organization Corruption Watch. The report reveals the latest corruption trends as reported by the public during the first half of 2018. The NGO has received over 23,000 cases of corruption. These range from the flouting of employment processes that enables nepotism and 
fraudulent qualifications to embezzlement of funds. For more on this, we're now joined on the line by David Lewis, who is the Executive Director at Corruption Watch. Hello, and thank you very much for joining us, David. Pleasure. Thanks for inviting us. Uh, David, um, what made you decide to embark on research for this report? Well, that's, you know, we've been in existence now for over six and a half years, and our, our model, if you like, is to invite public participation in combating corruption, and the way that we do that is through asking the public to report experiences of corruption to us. And then it serves to first enable us to speak with a public voice and with concrete evidence, but I think it also underlines the importance of whistleblowing in combating corruption. If the public, if third parties, as it were, don't report experiences of corruption, it's really quite impossible to to combat it because clearly the parties to a corrupt deal, both of whom are guilty of corruption, are not going to voluntarily report. So it relies very heavily on the kind of whistleblowing that we're getting. Mm. Um, Were you surprised by your findings? No, they really conform to patterns that, you know, have stabilized over a long period. The volume of reports is more or less the same. It's slightly down on the same period last year, although that's because I think we've been spent a lot of the first half of the year doing preparatory work for two big reporting campaigns that we're launching in this half of the year. The the distribution is fairly similar. I mean, what's uh, unusual about our reports is that they, they serve to underline how ordinary people are exposed to the real burden of corruption. So, you know, we get our fair share of the reports that make it to the front pages of the mainstream press but um, but the kind of, but many of the reports that we are getting are not the reports that make it there, but that they are acts of corruption that bear incredibly heavily on people least able to afford them. It's people who pay to get their prescriptions filled at the hospital, school kids whose lunch program disappears because it's been stolen, and we think that those are acts of corruption that need to be taken very seriously because they hugely impact on citizen participation in civic life, on whether people take the law into their own hands or not, and on the burden, as I say, that is brought to bear on, on people least able to afford it. Mm. Um, what were some of the issues that you found that surprised you the most? Um, you know, like I said, there haven't been any major surprises. I mean, schools reports continue, reports on corruption in the management of schools continue to be high. Uh, local government is, a, is an ever-looming larger and larger area for corruption. And, you know, I sometimes feel that it's going to be easier to sort out corruption in the ESCOMs and the transnets, where there are a lot of resources, a lot of exposure, than it is going to be in local governments that are more shielded from the from this kind of conversation, if you if you if you like, and you know indeed as uh, as, uh, as I hope happens, people uh, government cracks down on corruption in in national government and in national entities. You might find quite a lot of it being displaced to provincial and local government, which are already quite high levels of corruption. 
we are, we are particularly interested, and the figures do show something of an increase in what is revealed about corruption in police, in the provision of policing services and health services, and those are the two campaigns that we want to launch uh, in this half of the year and invite people to report experiences of corruption there, as we did in the case there of schools and refugees and asylum seekers, and the public responded very positively to that request. So we think that there's going to be a very marked increase in those reports in the second half of the year. So this 23,000 is only for from the first half of the year? No, for the first half of the year, it, the 34,000 is over the six years. The first okay. half of the year, it's about 2,500 reports. The, the reports come in at the rate of about 140, 150 reports a week. All right, so what do you then do with your reports once you've, uh, since you've now compiled it? Well, we use it for a variety of reasons. I mean, obviously, we can only investigate a very select number of them, and we do that usually guided by areas of strategic focus like schools, police, and corruption, and health. Uh, we, do, we do investigations there. We use the data from the reports to identify patterns and hotspots of corruption and to guide us in mounting campaigns. Some of the reports uh, ultimately land up in litigation. We derive the sort of intelligence, if you like, from the reports that enable us to do policy advocacy, to recommend changes in legislation, changes in regulation. But mostly we use the reports to communicate with the public. And so, you know, they they communicate their experience of corruption to us. And we are very intent, which is why we release a report like this, on reporting back to them what we have learned from their reports and principally in order to encourage people to report, and it seems to be working. But we don't promise people that we can sort of vindicate, that we can give individual relief to every single reporter. I mean, what is happening is that we are starting to develop better relations with key government departments, and they are on occasion providing us with sort of interfaces in their departments to whom we can take the reports to. We obviously wouldn't reveal anybody's name unless they gave us, unless they consented to do so. But we can go to a government department and say, you know, hey, we have 10 reports of corruption from this clinic or that school, and you know you've got a problem there. We haven't investigated them all, but, you know, nobody could believe it. We are making these up. And uh, and so the reports uh, have proved very useful. Mm. Um, do you um, also look at the impact of some of the corruption? For example, I'm thinking about the children who end up without food in schools when the food, uh, the schools feeding scheme money disappears. Well, we look at the impact of corruption. I mean, it's very difficult to put a sort of rands and cents amount to corruption and many people who do that I think are really doing a lot of some sucking but you know there are education you know we have we have a lot of stories of kids who go to school sometimes to receive their only meal of the day whose uh, whose uh, whose lunch has disappeared and uh, you can imagine the impact that that has I mean on the families on their abilities of the ability to learn and to study, 
uh, certainly with refugees and asylum seekers, I mean, who pay fortunes to get papers that they are supposed to receive at no cost. Uh, in, as I say, in clinics, we have stories of people paying to get their prescriptions filled, of paying to get uh, treated in public hospitals. So, so we have more, if you like, anecdotal narratives that tell one about the impact of corruption rather than hard data. The hard data is in the volume of reports and the pattern of reports, but to measure the impact is much more difficult. Uh, there's also the issue of uh, sextorting in schools. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those are the those are the, the the hardest reports to receive. I mean, hardest in the sense that they are the most distressing reports to receive. And and they and uh, believe you me, it is not an uncommon practice. And uh, that's also you know something that we are wanting to give particular attention to. You know, it seems to actually be part of gender-based violence that is so rife in South Africa and that, you know, arguably is the most damning indictment of our society. And so this is the form it takes in schools. Uh, can and, you go deeper uh, into that? So what happens? Um, who is sextorting uh, from whom? Well, uh, it, it, a teacher would uh, typically, I mean, in the reports, a teacher would approach a young girl and say, you know, you're not doing too well in this exam and you're unlikely, you know, to pass into, you know, grade 11 next uh, next year. Well, I have got a proposition for you that will give you extra marks. Or you want to get a university pass, well, I can help you with your studies. I mean, it's really as crude as that, but it's a bribe. I mean, the... the a bribe is solicited from a schoolgirl and on occasion a schoolboy, and you know they don't have money to pay, but to put it you know at its crudest, it's other assets of theirs that the uh, that the uh, um, that the that the solicitors are after, and you know it's their bodies basically, and it's appalling. It's the most appalling practice that we have to deal with. Um, does this often get reported when it get re- yeah. when it gets reported, or what happens? Well, it gets reported to us, and you, you know, it's not a you know we are by no means the only ones who have documented this practice. I think it's quite widespread, but we've you know taken up a number of those in investigations, and it's hard. You know, it's a little bit like like uh, experiences that are often reported in relation to rape. I mean, well, you know. To all intents and purposes, it is rape. The kids are reluctant to report it when it happens, and you know there's a family man involved, and he is going to be disgraced. And his family are upset. Often the police intervene to try and you know secure a, a, a sort of an arrangement between the the the, the girl's family and the and the, the teacher. And we've we've taken these up, and um, you know we've found some pretty inappropriate practices amongst the police, amongst the in the in the prosecutorial authorities, and even in social w- workers. But uh, but uh, it's it's 
it's something that really begs a much deeper investigation and a real think about what the appropriate responses and solutions are to this. Uh, will you be continuing with these reports? Yes, yes, yes. Well, well you know, our, our two sort of big reports on, on, on our reporting data are every year when we release our annual report, which we do in about sort of early March every year, and then this half-year report, which we which we release in early August, um, and we'll certainly continue to do that. I mean, in you know, during the course of the year, we sometimes report on data that we're getting in particular sectors, but the reports are important to us, and the and the reports about the reports are important to us. The analysis of the reports are important to us, and the public seem to derive, um, you know, seem to like getting the reports and understanding what's going on. David Lewis, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. David Lewis there is Executive Director at Corruption Watch. It is now time for your economic news here as we send Matabula. Good evening. Thanks, as Pumelele. We start off in Kenya, where the competition watchdog expressed concern about the wider economic impact of lawmakers and the country's telecoms regulator taking a tough line on dominant operator Safaricom, saying no action was needed. Kenya's competition authority had not found any evidence of Safaricom which has a 67% market share using its dominance in any of its business sectors, meaning there was no need for any action by regulators. Safaricom has in the past been found guilty of entering restrictive agreements with its mobile money agents. And the latest report by Corruption Watch shows that the procurement irregularities in South Africa have increased significantly in municipalities and state-owned enterprises. The report indicates that procurement loopholes account for just under 45% compared with 18% in last year's report. The report found that businesses are increasingly engaging in corrupt behavior to secure business and government contracts. Melusi Nala is a researcher at Corruption Watch and the author of the report. These are procurement issues that largely pertain to um, our reporters highlighting how businesses are more than willing to pay bribes in the form of kickbacks to officials within the municipalities so that they can secure tenders. It's always a problem when we have businesses that seek to circumvent the laws of the country, you know, just to benefit themselves. South African Trade Union AMCU has threatened to embark on a strike if consultations on looming retrenchments at Impala Platinum Mine fail. AMCU strongly condemns the planned retrenchments of 13,000 workers at the mine's operations in Rustenburg, the union's president, Joseph Matunja. You never heard of AMCO going on the wildcat strike. We will invite our comrades to assist us because if you attack the workers at Impala, we are not only attacking those workers, we are attacking our families in KZN, Limpompo, all corners of the country. There is a knock-on negative, knock-on effect to the society at large. So there must be time for them to be accountable. If they are not being taught, we'll teach them. 
Nigeria's Diamond Bank expects uh, to conclude the sale of its uh, British unit before the end of the year and is going through a change of ownership. The mid-tier lender uh, struck a deal with uh, British industrialist Sanjeev Gupta earlier this year. The lender expects loans to grow 5% by the end of the year after credit declined in the first half. Meanwhile, Zenith Bank, still a Nigerian bank, expects uh, to grow its loan book by 2.5% by the end of the year after credit declined in the first half. Loans fell 6.3% in the six months to end June following a 4.6% decline last year. The lender expects an improvement in the second half of the year and will target loans to manufacturers. Financial indicators, the dollar turns 17, Botswana Pula, 9.95, Zambian Kwacha, BRICS currencies, the dollar at 3.71 Brazilian Real, 63.54 Russian Ruble, 68.54 Indian Ruby, 6.85 Chinese Yuan, and at 13.39 South African Rand. European currencies, uh, the dollar stronger at uh, 77 pence to the British pound and 86 cents against the euro. Commodities, uh, gold, $1,209. Platinum has gone down to $822 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil up $74.05 per barrel. That's how it's looking right now. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Attention to our listeners. The first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700-hour show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700-hours Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective. It is 17.50 Central African Time with Sports News. Now here's Mosebude Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news, South Africa's senior women's national team, Banyana Banyana, have assembled for a training camp at the Nike Center in Pimville, south of Johannesburg, to prepare for the upcoming Kosafa Cup tournament. Now, the regional championship will be staged in South Africa from the 26th of August and conclude on the 6th of September. South Africa will be looking at defending their title. Now, Banyana Banyana head coach Desiree Ellis says she is happy with the level of fitness in camp. 
I was very happy um, with the level of fitness. It shows that they're playing regularly at the clubs. And I think it's important for us to have done the fitness test. We know there's a big gap from now until the Kusafa Cup. And we want to make sure that when we do send out a training program, that it's not haphazard because the level of fitness is more or less on par. So when we do send out the program for them to be ready for Kusafa, it will be a program that will benefit all of them. It has helped us in the past sending out these programs and that is the reason why we did the fitness test today. Well, Banyana Banyana goalkeeper Roxanne Barker says the introduction of new players in camp brought a new energy and excitement within the team. Well, I think uh, we're all important. Um, my defense is going to make me look good and then I do whatever I can to make them look good. So it's, it's always a team effort. And, um, and yeah, if, if I'm having a good game, usually my defense is having a good game. And just working hard every day, trying to keep fit and... Um, yeah, have a good relationship with my teammates and so far, so good. The modern camp? It's good, yeah. There's a positive vibe and a lot of new players which brings um, extra energy and excitement. That is uh, Channel Africa's Neto Chumani speaking to the goalkeeper of Banyana Banyana Rocks and Parkham. Well, uh, Egypt goalkeeper Hassam Al-Adhadri who is, uh, or rather who at the FIFA World Cup in Russia set a record as the oldest player to feature at a World Cup, has retired from international football. The 45 year old who won four Africa Cup of Nations tournament with Egypt made his debut back in 1996 and played 159 times for his country. He played Egypt's final group game in Russia saving a penalty in the Pharaoh's uh, 2-1 defeat by Saudi Arabia. And finally, Tanzania have appointed former Nigeria winger Emmanuel Amanike as the new head coach of the national team. Amanike, who was uh, most recently coach of Sudanese Premier League side al Khartoum, has signed a two-year contract. His first competitive game in charge of the senior Taifa Stars will be at the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations qualify against Uganda later this year. Aminike replaces local coach Salum Mayanga, who had been in charge of the Taifa Stars since last year. Well, those are sports news at the sound. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.54 Central African time. Let us recap parts of stories. There seems to be slow uptake in registering candidates for the DRC's presidential elections. Ivory Coast president pardons prisoners as the country celebrates independence. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Spumelele Zondi producer, Luyanda Mahoma, technical producer, Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team. Thank you very much for listening.